Well, good morning, everyone. If you uh, have your Bibles with you, turn to Third John and scroll down to uh, verse 11. That would be great. Uh, I think I have it on the screen here for you as well. This uh, verse 11 here, 3 John, verse 11, this is going to be our main point for the sermon this morning. The Apostle John says here in verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Easy to say, but how do we live that out? What is evil? What is good? And who should we imitate? Because good role models are really hard to find these days. You know, I remember when we were first married, the world was going crazy for a cyclist named Lance Armstrong. I don't know if some of you remember him. Uh, he won the Tour de France an insane seven times in a row from 1999 until 2005. And kids, if you have no idea what the Tour de France is, it's just a gigantic cycling race where hundreds of cyclists race around the country of France. It's like 2,300 miles long over three weeks. And he won this race seven times in a row. And this was after he had defeated cancer. Uh, it was like he was like a Marvel superhero in, in real life. It was incredible. He was everywhere. We had, had a charitable organization that started called Live Strong. You know, it had those yellow bracelets that everyone was wearing, and he was on TV and sponsorships and everything. Until it came out that he had been taking performance-enhancing drugs illegally for almost his entire career and forcing his teammates to do likewise. His excuse at the time was, was simply, well, everyone else is doing it, so we should also. And I get it, the, the pressure to perform and to win is enormous. But he still had a choice in that moment to imitate those around him who were doping or to stand firm and do what is right. And he chose poorly and he was banned for life as a result and had all the awards and accolades stripped. And in the process, thousands of other young athletes and young people were forced to reevaluate who are my role models going to be? Because who you choose to follow in life will have significant consequences in how you live your life. Now, going back to our passage today, John is going to present us with two very different potential role models. First, a man named Diotrephes, a man named, and then second, a man named Demetrius. First, we'll talk about Diotrephes, an example of someone who falls in the category of doing evil, a man driven by, um, by selfish ambition, a man nobody should emulate. A second, we'll look at Demetrius, an example of someone who falls in the category of doing good, a man committed to faithfully following Jesus, a man all of us should emulate. And then finally, we'll close with some thoughts about how we can go about pursuing a life committed to the good, as Demetrius did. But let's jump in. My first point today is simply this, do not be like Diotrephes. 
you look with me at the text starting in verse 9, he says here, I have, uh, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Remember, 3 John, this letter, 3 John is a letter written to a man named Gaius from the Apostle John, featuring Demetrius and Diotrephes. Now, as uh, Pastor Michael noted last week, Gaius is, he's doing great. He is walking in the truth. He's showing hospitality. He's supporting the work of Christ in his community, supporting traveling missionaries. It's a beautiful thing. And it's incredible. There's no indication that he was some sort of super Christian or famous leader. I think he was just a regular guy. He would probably be shocked to know that we're still talking about him today. That like, like, wow, my name is in the Bible? Are you kidding me? Like with all those other guys? Like, yes, guys, really. And it's incredible what a model we have here for us. Not doing anything fancy or spectacular, right? Not saving the world, no massive social media presence, no big following, no books, this is the most achievable goal possible for all of us, following Jesus faithfully as best he knows how. Serving, loving, praying, walking in the truth, taking each day one step at a time, slowly but consistently investing his life in the kingdom that can never be destroyed. I don't know about you, but at the end of my life, that's what I want to be able to look back and say, that was me. That's what I did. I was, I was like Gaius. I just lived out my faith faithfully as best I could. No hoopla, no, no fancy parades, no nothing. Just a guy loving Jesus. But here's the problem for him. There is another man in the church named Diotrephes, and his way of life is markedly different. Look at verse 9. Apparently, John had written a letter of some sort to the church previously, uh, and perhaps it was a letter of recommendation, perhaps it was recommending that they accept and welcome in some traveling missionaries. We don't know because Diotrephes had rejected that letter and rejected the messengers, the brothers that John had sent with it. Now, this isn't technically an issue of heresy here, like John doesn't call him out as being an antichrist or, or, or falling into some kind of doctrinal error. The problem here is more personal. It's about his character, if you remember, throughout, if you've read 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, throughout these letters, John emphasizes over and over again the centrality. Love God. Love others. Love the truth. But Diotrephes, he only loves one thing. Being in first place. That's what it says in verse 9. He loves to be first, ruling the roost, sitting on the throne, wielding the power, 
That's where his heart is. Personal accomplishment, personal achievement, personal success, personal accolades. The complete opposite of everything that we know about Gaius. Just look at the text. Diotrephes refuses to acknowledge the Apostle John's authority and does nothing but talk wicked nonsense about John and John's people. In other words, he's spreading lies, slander, gossip, cranking up the rumor mill, working the angles to set people against John. John, like the Apostle John, the inner circle with Jesus. John. It's crazy. Now, no offense to uh, middle schoolers here, but there's something about the preteen years that makes boys and girls particularly susceptible to this kind of rumor-mongering and gossip and talking and, and everything, right? You know it. You've lived it. You've experienced it for yourselves. And it can be really, really painful to be in the other end, the wrong end, of that kind of talking. And while most folks, generally speaking, kind of grow out of that, some never seem to escape the allure of such politicking. And it can lead to terrible division and disunity in the church as a result. And so John says in verse 10, look, I'm going to be there soon and I'm going to confront Diotrephes in person, publicly, to put an end to this. Uh, if you think that sounds like harsh language, remember, we just heard at the beginning of the service, James and John, right, going up to Jesus like, hey, can we sit on one of those thrones next to you when you appear in your glory? Like, can we be first? Can we be up there in front of everyone else? And so John, uh, Jesus has to patiently talk him through that and remind him, look, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And John eventually came to understand what that meant. Diotrephes, on the other hand, seems never to have gotten that message. All right, look at the second half of verse 10. And not content with all that, meaning putting himself first, rejecting John's authority, spreading lies and everything else, uh, Diotrephes, he, meaning Diotrephes, refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. This goes back to that issue of hospitality we talked so much about in 2nd and 3rd John, right? It's so important. And John had sent people from his church to the church where Gaius and, and Diotrephes are, and instead of welcoming them and helping them on their way, Diotrephes shut them out, right? He then, on top of that, worked to keep other people from showing hospitality as well. And just to add insult to injury, those people who were trying to help, he's like, you know what? I'm going to force you out of the church as well, which you would think was totally improbable and unlikely and what an extreme reaction, and this could never happen today, right? Except it does still happen in some churches today when gifted, charismatic pastors slowly become more and more concerned with consolidating and wielding power for themselves and laying down their lives for the sheep and end up forcing other people out of the church as a result, You've heard the stories. You've listened to the podcasts. 
You've maybe even experienced it for yourself. It's one of the reasons I'm so glad that we have multiple (laughs) equal elders as our model here because it helps to guard against such kind of an abuse of power. But at the same time, this text is not just about renegade pastors. In fact, if we read carefully, there's no indication that Diotrephes is an elder in this church. He seems to have quite a lot of power, but it doesn't say that he's an elder. The text, therefore, speaks as a warning to all believers, not just pastors. The message is clear. Don't be like Diotrephes. Don't look for ways to build and sustain power wherever it is that might be, whether that's a church or work or at school, in your family or extended family. Look, anytime you bring a group of people together of any age, cliques quickly start to form. Leaders rise to the surface, right? And folks quickly start manipulating and angling and trying to finagle and work their way to see who can be in power. You see this on the playground. Kids, you see this at school, right, with other kids. You see this on sports teams. You see it pretty much anywhere there are people, right? (laughs) Because we're sinners, And we just kind of keep our hands out of it. And it's a grace from God that he doesn't always and immediately intervene to reveal and to stop all such sinful behavior. For many of us would then be embarrassed by our own petty attempts to get ahead of other people. At the same time, Just as John promises, look, I'm going to be there soon and I will confront Diotrephes publicly and this will be made known. So too, when Jesus returns, all will be revealed and all wickedness and evil will be brought to light and punished. And I don't know about you, but I would rather deal with that sin in my life now the waiting for that day when Jesus will return. So don't be like Diotrephes. When you feel pride rising up in your chest, confess it to God. Name it out loud in your prayers to him. And ask the Holy Spirit to fill you with humility and patience instead. Now the first point is all negative, Don't imitate evil. In this case, don't be like Diotrephes. The second point is all positive. Do be like Demetrius. right? Imitate good. Be like Demetrius. But who is this guy? Look at verse 12. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also had our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. Now look, I wish I could give you some full extensive backstory on just who Demetrius was, but we have very limited information. We know Demetrius was a common name at the time based off the name of the Greek goddess Demeter, so he was probably from a pagan uh, Greek background, probably first generation Christian. We also know that Demetrius is the one who's bringing this letter to Gaius. He's probably uh, standing there in the door like, here's the letter, read it, and then hopefully I don't get thrown out. 
And he's the very least we know that he lived near the Apostle John, probably worshipped at the same church, and was clearly a close friend of John. It's amazing. But as with Gaius, I personally find this lack of information, again, really encouraging, right? Like he's just another regular guy living out his life, not famous, not powerful, not significant. His name isn't in the Bible because he planted a church. His name is in the Bible because he was faithful to the task to which God appointed him. Nothing more. In other words, he's somebody that we can all emulate regardless of how old or young we are, sick or well, wherever we find ourselves in life. We can be like Demetrius. But what does that look like? Well, clearly, Demetrius had made an impact of some sort on the people around him. Look at the first part of verse 12. John says, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone. That's quite a a recommendation to offer, right? Here's a man of whom everyone thinks really highly. They don't just like him. They trust him. His character qualities are evident. He's the kind of man that you want to have around. The kind of guy who's going to, you trust to count the offering after the service is over. But it's not just other people who speak so well about Demetrius. John says, (coughs) Demetrius has received a good testimony from the truth itself. This is probably just another way of saying it. His life reflects the truth of the gospel. In other words, his actions reflect the true condition of his heart. His words reflect the truths that he claims to believe. His affections, his emotions are in line with the gospel that he professes. Everything kind of lines up in his life. He's not one way in public and then something else completely different in private. Side note, this is not sinless perfection, right? John himself is really clear. If we claim to have no sin, we lie. 1 John uh, first, uh, chapter 1, verse 8. But for the most part, given that he's still a sinner, as far as he is able, Demetrius lives a life where his words and his actions are in sync with each other, a life that is a visible demonstration of the power of the gospel that he proclaims. And then finally, Demetrius has the testimony of John himself. John says, look, this is my guy. Like, I personally vouch for him. I recently filled out a letter of uh, recommendation for someone who was applying to be a lawyer in a different state. And after the usual, like, generic questions at the beginning, the last question was, they, they want to know, like, would yeah, yeah, but would you personally recommend this man for this position? I was like, well, yeah, of course, absolutely. And I wrote all my reasons why. But it's funny to me that even in our modern data-driven world, something as totally subjective as our personal words of recommendation can still carry so much weight. Right? Test scores, grades, work experience, it's all helpful, but in a world where there's so much lying and cheating, 
So much that it's fake and artificial. We have nowhere else to turn. At some point, we have to choose to trust. More than that, we have to choose whom we're going to trust. And that trust is something that can only be earned slowly over time, as Demetrius apparently did with the Apostle John. And such trustworthiness should therefore also be a goal for all followers of Jesus. Now kids, imagine with me for a moment. Imagine with me for a moment. It's Saturday. Uh, You've been told that you need to mow the lawn. Maybe some of you, this was yesterday's reality. You don't have to imagine it. It's more of a memory, right? But you're out there slaving away in the fearsome heat, back and forth, back and forth, and you're, you're, you're trimming the edges, and you're sweeping the sidewalk, and you're taking endless bags of clippings to the, to the waist, and, and the sun is beating down on you, and you're fighting to turn the wheels in the corners, and there's this constant drone of the engine, and it's pumping out this relentless hot exhaust, and it's back and forth, on and on, hour after hour, and the sweat pouring out of every pore of your body, and finally, you're like, I have to stop before, you know, like I die of heat exhaustion. And, and as you sit there, and you're wondering to yourself, is this even legal for my parents to make me do this? Aren't there like child labor laws or, or something? And, and you, in that moment, you imagine with me, in that moment, your mom shows up, and, and she brings out to you the most enormous glass of ice-cold well, I don't know, whatever your favorite drink is. It's like Gatorade or iced tea or some kind of soda. It's Mountain Dew, chocolate milk. I have no idea. And it's just crammed to overflowing with the most beautiful ice you've ever seen in your life. And it's like clinking against the side of the glass, which is like dripping with this cool condensation down the side. The ice tumbling out of the top. And in that moment, what do you do? It's not a trick question. (laughs) You you chug that thing down, right? And then in between chugs, you're probably, what's the right response to your mom in this situation? Yeah, like, thank you. Now, how would you feel after that drink? Like, how are you feeling after all that? refreshed, right? A lot better. (laughs) Like all is right with the world once again. Like this is the most incredible thing I have ever tasted in my entire life, ever. Now here's why I bring this up. Look at verse uh, Proverbs 25, verse 13. Proverbs 25, verse 13. Like a snow-cooled drink at harvest time is a trustworthy messenger to the one who sends him. He refreshes the spirit of his master. That's the image that we're talking about here in 3 John. A trustworthy messenger is as refreshing and as encouraging as the one who sends him, uh, to the one who sends him, as like a, a giant slushy would be to the person working in the heat of harvest. 
And Demetrius is just such a trustworthy messenger, refreshing the spirit of his master, John, bringing encouragement to his brother in Christ, Gaius. And we also have been called by Jesus to be trustworthy messengers of the gospel, bringing joy to our heavenly Father and hope to a broken world. So here's what I want you to do. Look, next time you're out at, a, at Chick-fil-A or wherever it is that, that you love to go to get your favorite soda, the gas station, I have no idea, and you're crunching on that the, the, the like best, most refreshing little ice nuggets in the whole world. Mm. Oh, man, it was really good. Be better if it was lemonade, but, you know, water will have to do. Um, next time you grab that drink, I want you to be thinking, like, thinking of Demetrius. For real. Thinking of Third John. Asking yourself specifically these questions. How in sync is my life with my faith? Like, really, I'm enjoying this beautiful cold drink. And I'm thinking about Demetrius and thinking, how in life, how in sync is my life with my faith? Where do my actions need to come more in line with my intentions? Or maybe, what steps do I need to take right now to begin to rebuild trust where it's been broken? So that I can be that, that trustworthy messenger bringing that ice cold refreshment to others and bringing joy to the one who has sent me. Just think about the impact that you can have in your, in your family, in the church, in the world, just by faithfully representing Christ wherever you go. Dare to be a Demetrius. Now, for a third point, I said, you know, look, don't be like Diotrephes. Do be like Demetrius. And there are many ways that you could do that. But one way that comes to mind specifically from this text is my third point today. And that's you need deeper friendships. You need deeper friendships. Now, I have a confession to make in this area. Like, I am surprisingly bad at giving words of affirmation and encouragement to my friends, which is odd because I get paid to use words, right? That's my job, right? I get paid to write long sermons, or at least sermons that sometimes end up being long. <laughs> but um, I'm an English major, right? So I'm, I should be an expert at using words, and yet I'm just plain bad at expressing deep emotions, and especially to the people who mean the most to me, such as family and friends. Now, Sir John is not exactly an example of effusive emotional exuberance, but at the same time, his closing words in this letter are more than just standard last words that end a letter. So look with me at the text in verse 13. He says, I had much to write to you. But I wanted 
uh, rather not to write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. Now both 2nd and 3rd John and in a similar way, but the emphasis is slightly different. So as I argued a few weeks ago, 2nd John is a brief but urgent letter written to a church facing infiltration from potential false teachers and heresy. And so when John says in 2nd John, I want to write more about it, I'm going to wait until I see you face to face, there's this urgency behind it because of the precarious nature of the situation. A third John has similar words, but to me a totally different feel. Apparently, there's a lot more that John wants to share with Gaius in person, most likely about diatrophies, but the urgent issue is that Gaius accept and provide hospitality for Demetrius, which it seems likely he probably will do. And so the urgency of Second John to me is replaced with a, a tenderness here in Third John, reflecting a genuine desire from John to come and visit and spend more time in person. Because, look, letters are all well and good for conveying information, right? But what John says he's eager to do is to be there in person, in real life. And why do I say this? Look back at, at verse, uh, verses 1 and 2. He opens the letter by saying, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. And then in verse 5, he says, Beloved. And then in verse 11, Beloved. And then uh, there's this just warmth and affection throughout the letter. I mean, I, I don't know about you. I've never had a boss write to me an email phrased in just this way. Like, Beloved, I love to spend time with you. Right? This is the way that friends talk to each other, allowing for you know, cultural differences over time, of course. But the same thing is true today. FaceTime, Zoom, texts, emails, uh, 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 reels, TikToks, snaps, whatever. Those are all great. But nothing can replace hanging out with a friend in real life, in the flesh, knowing that you have each other's attention and focus. Right? Laughing together, walking together, doing whatever. It doesn't even really matter. Just you're in the same physical space together. We're created for those kinds of real life interactions and our souls crave it more than we like to admit. Look, adults, remember when you were kids and you just couldn't get enough time together with your friends? It didn't matter what you were doing, what, how you were hanging out, like going to Target or just sitting on the front yard or... Or, or it's like, I, I, we're going to have sleepovers because we just, we just love hanging out together. It's just so fun. Of kids, uh, uh, it gets different as you get older. Kids, work, life, houses, chores, to-do lists, it all makes it so much harder. But we still need those relationships, even as grown-ups. Look at verse 15. John says, the friends 
greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. Now, Bible scholars generally seem to agree that these churches were all based in and around the area of Ephesus. And from this verse, it would seem that the folks knew each other. They, they, they weren't just sort of brothers in Christ in the sense that we all are with Christians around the world, but they were personally and intimately uh, friends with the people at the churches here. And then John says, greet the friends by name. He knew them personally. He doesn't list them all out the way Paul does, but it's just as personal here for John. He fully intends for Gaius to take his greetings to specific individuals, name by name, person by person around the church. Now, most of us know a lot of people, like we know their names. We know the basics of their lives. We know what they put on social media. We see and know their public life as a result. But how many people do you actually like know? Like, like you know the stories behind the pictures. You know the struggles that don't make it into the prayer requests at church on Sunday morning. You know the awkward details that that they kind of wish other people wouldn't know about. More pointedly, how many people really know you? And I don't mean the curated you that you present to everyone else. I mean the the behind-the-scenes, all-access pass, unauthorized biography, you. That this is the real you, the unfiltered you. Now maybe you're thinking, but look, John, people are sinful and messy, and confidence has been betrayed in the past, and I don't want my mess being made public. Yeah, you're right. I totally get that. That is a hundred percent true. Church is an imperfect place filled with sinners like you and me. Private prayer requests end up as church gossip. Confidences are betrayed. It all gets messy and broken. And people get hurt. And it's a human problem. And you should be wise and judicious in what you share and with whom. But you cannot, we cannot hide and control forever. At some point, in order to keep walking in the truth, in order to have this kind of vibrant community, in order to persevere to the end, you need more than just acquaintances. All of us, we need true friends, like Gaius, like Demetrius, like John. Do you realize the Apostle John was someone's friend? somebody they hung out with and that they knew. Look, whoever you are, however old or young, it doesn't matter. Kids, adults, married, unmarried. Doesn't some part of you crave that kind of connection to be thought of, to be inquired after, to be prayed for? And we have a chance today, every week, during our fellowship meal, right here after church, to put this into application, to take a baby step in this direction, and to push past 
the normal chit-chat, the surface-level stuff, and just go a little bit deeper today. Ask someone how they're really doing. No, but like, okay, really, like how are you really doing? And if someone asks you the same thing, you have a chance, be brave. Take a risk today. Try opening up a little bit. And may we grow in grace as a church as we grow deeper together as friends. Look, in the end, what we're talking about here and all this is just, it's just discipleship. Because the people you choose to follow, the, the, the people you choose to hang out with, these are the folks who are discipling you in life, shaping your thoughts and feelings, forming your impression of yourself in the world, and most importantly, your, your people, they're the ones who are most responsible for guiding and shaping your spiritual life, for helping you or perhaps hindering you from becoming more and more like Jesus. Because ultimately, the main person we should be modeling our life on is Christ. That's what Paul means when he says to the Corinthians, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Beloved, as your pastors collectively, we have no greater joy than to know that you are walking in the truth as indeed you are. But the pressures to wander off the path are many and constant. So stay the course. Lean hard on the Holy Spirit for strength and support and press on to the end in full confidence that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that we are not in this race alone, that we're not walking this journey alone, that we can turn to you for strength. And in our weakness, we pray that your Holy Spirit would strengthen us, would help us to to resist the pride that would lead us to be like Diotrephes. Lord, fill us with the humility that allows us to be a faithful servant, bringing refreshment to all, like Demetrius. And Lord, give us boldness and confidence to crack open that hard shell and to go deeper in our friendships, Lord, as as John calls us to do. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.